0: But further, the Revolution Assembly did partly consist of such members as, contrary to our solemn covenants, had their consciences dreadfully polluted by consenting unto, subscribing, and swearing some one or other of the sinful wicked oaths, tests, and bonds, tyrannically imposed in the persecuting period or by persuading others to take them, and declining to give warnings of the danger of them, or by approving the warrantableness of giving security to the bloody council, not to exercise their ministry, but according to their pleasure. Moreover, they were all generally manifestly guilty of the sin of carrying on and maintaining schism and defection from the Covenanted Church of Christ in Scotland as also, which from the history of these times is evident, the ruling elders in that assembly, being generally noblemen, gentlemen, and burgesses, were mostly such as had an active hand in the tyranny and persecution that preceded, and in one respect or other were stained with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Thus that assembly was packed up chiefly of such Blacked compilers, as one way or other, were deeply involved in the apostasy, bloodshed, and cruelty of the preceding period, yet had not broke off their iniquities by a public confession of these crying sins before that meeting, nor can it be found that any adequate censure was inflicted on any of them for the same. Therefore the Presbytery testify against the Revolution Church as consisting mostly of such scandalous schismatical members as could not in a consistency with the scriptural rule and laudable acts of this reformed church, have been admitted to church privileges, far less to bear office in the house of God, until at least they had, given, they had been duly purged from their aggravated scandals and given evident signs of a real repentance, according to the word of God. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 3, For they could not keep the Passover at that time because of the because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently. And Ezekiel forty four ten, And the Levites that are gone away far from me when Israel went astray, which went astray away from me after their idols, they shall even bear their iniquity. Verse 13, And they shall not come near unto me to do the office of a priest unto me, nor to come near to any of my holy things in the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Next, the Presbytery declare and testify against the Revolution Church because plainly Erastian and utterly inconsistent with the covenanted Constitution of the Reformed Church of Scotland, anno 1648, the truth of which charge will appear obvious from considering the act of Parliament on which the civil power settled the Constitution of the Revolution Church viz. Act 114, James 6, Parliament 12, where, inter alia, it is expressly declared, quote, that it shall be lawful to the Kirk ministers every year at least, and oftener, pro renata, as occasion and necessity shall require, to hold and keep general assemblies, providing that the King's Majesty, or his Commissioner with them, to be appointed, be His Highness to be present at ilk general assembly before the dissolving thereof, Nominate and appoint time and place. Convene, the next General Assembly shall be holden, and in case neither His Majesty nor His said Commissioner is present for the time in that town, where the said General Assembly be as holden then, and in that case it shall be leesome, for the said General Assembly be themselves to nominate and appoint time and place. where the next General Assembly of the Kirk shall be kept and halden as they have been in use to do these times by past. Here in this act a manifest invasion and traitorous attack is made upon the headship and supremacy of Christ as a son in and over his own house. He who is God's anointed, king in Zion, and sits on the throne of his holiness, is hereby robbed of his crown rights. The intrinsic power, the spiritual liberty and freedom granted by Christ to his church is encroached upon. It is a received opinion among all true Presbyterians that the Church has an intrinsic power to meet in the courts of Christ's house from the lowest to the highest by virtue of the power committed to her by the Lord Jesus Christ without dependence on the civil power. This is agreeable to Scriptures. Matthew 16, verse 19, and 18, verses 18 and 19, where the apostles received the keys immediately from the hands of Christ their Lord and Master. And as one principal part of that trust Christ has committed to his Church, this has been the constant plea of the reforming and reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Let us hear what that renowned and faithful minister and venerable confessor for Christ, the Rev. Mr. John Welsh, says to this particular in his letter to the Countess of Whiten from Blackness, 1606, when a prisoner for the same truth. Having asserted the independence of the Church the spiritual kingdom of Christ upon any earthly monarch, and her freedom to meet and judge of all her affairs, he adds. These two points, first, that Christ is head of his church, second, that she is free in her government from all other jurisdictions except Christ's. These two points, I say, are the special causes of our imprisonment, being now convicted as traitors for maintaining thereof. We have been ever waiting with joyfulness to give the last testimony of our blood in confirmation thereof if it should please our God to be so favorable as to honor us with that dignity. Yea, I do affirm that these two points above written, and all other things that do belong to Christ's crown, scepter, and kingdom, are not subject nor cannot be to any other authority but to his own altogether, so that I would be glad to be offered up as a sacrifice for so glorious a truth. So far he... But now this assembly of treacherous men, by settling themselves up upon such a constitution, have openly given up this scriptural truth and Presbyterian principle handed down to us, sealed with the sufferings and dearest blood of the faithful faithful confessors and martyrs of Christ, and have consented that it is unlawful for the office-bearers in the Lord's house to exert their proper power in calling and appointing general assemblies, however loudly the necessity of the church may call for them, unless the king authorized their diet of meeting, which he may or may not do according to his pleasure. Again, it is evident that the Revolution Church is constituted in the same Erastian manner with the late prelacy in Scotland, for proof of which observe that as, a, as prelacy was never ecclesiastically asserted to be of divine authority, neither has presbytery by any explicit and formal act of assembly at or since the Revolution. As the prelate's high ecclesiastical court was called, adjourned, and dissolved in the king's name, so likewise are the assemblies of the Revolution Church. As the Episcopalians owned the king in the exercise of his Erastian supremacy over them, so the Revolution Church, instead of opposing, did take up her standing under the covert of that anti-Christian supremacy, and has never since declined the exercise thereof and, as the civil power prescribed limits unto, and at pleasure altered, the prelatic church, so this church has accepted of a formula prescribed by the civil power requiring that all the ordinances within the same be performed by the ministers thereof as they were then allowed them, or should thereafter be declared by their authority, as Act twenty third, Session four, Parliament First, 1693, expressly bears. By what is said above, it may appear that this church is Erastian in her constitution. But it is further to be observed that the present constitution is no less inconsistent with the scriptural and covenanted constitution of the Church of Scotland, in regard that the retrograde constitution to which the Church fled back and on which she was settled at the Revolution was but an infant state of the Church, lately after her first reformation from popery, far inferior to her advanced state betwixt 1638 and 1649 inclusive. It was before the Church had shaken off the intolerable yokes of the Rastian supremacy and patronages, before she had ecclesiastically asserted and practically maintained her spiritual and scriptural claim of right, namely, the divine right of Presbytery, an intrinsic power of the Church, the two special gems of Christ's crown as King on His holy hill of Zion, before the explanation of the National Covenant as condemning Episcopacy, the five Articles of Perth, the civil power of churchmen, before the Solemn League and Covenant was entered into, before the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Catechisms, larger and shorter, the Directory for Worship, form of Presbyterian church government and ordination of ministers were composed, and before the acts of church and state for purging judicatories, ecclesiastical and civil, and armies from persons disaffected to the cause and work of God were made, and all these valuable pieces of reformation ratified with the full and ample sanction of the supreme civil authority by the king's majesty and the honorable estates of parliament. As parts of the covenanted uniformity in religion betwixt the churches of Christ in Scotland, England, and Ireland. And therefore, this revolution constitution amounts to a shameful disregarding, yea, disclaiming and burying much, if not all, of the Reformation attained to in that memorable period, and is a virtual Amologation and allowance of the iniquitous laws at the Restoration, Anno 1661, condemning our glorious Reformation and sacred covenants as rebellion, and is such an aggravated step of defection and apostasy as too clearly discovers this church to be fixed upon a different footing and to be called by another name than the genuine offspring of the true covenanted Church of Christ in Scotland. Besides what has been already noticed, Respecting the sinfulness both of the member's constituent and the constitutions at the revolution, it is to be further observed, as just matter of lamentation, that at this period, when such a noble opportunity was offered, no suitable endeavors were made for reviving the covenanted cause and interest of our Redeemer. No care taken that the city of the Lord should be built upon our own heap, and the palace remain after the manner thereof. But, on the contrary, a religion was then established not only exceeding far short of, but in many particulars very inconsistent with and destructive of, that blessed uniformity in religion, once the glory of these now degenerate isles. The presbytery, therefore, in the next place, do testify against the settlement of religion made at the revolution, and that in these particulars following. 1. Instead of abolishing prelacy in England and Ireland as it had been abjured in the solemn league and covenant and stands condemned by the word of God and fundamental laws of the nations, conformed to the divine law, it was then, with all its popish Popish ceremonies, anew secured, confirmed, and established in both these kingdoms as the true religion according to the word of God to be publicly professed by all the people and the supreme civil magistrate solemnly sworn at his inauguration both that he himself shall be of the Episcopal communion and that he shall maintain inviolably the settlement of the church in the kingdoms of England and Ireland and territories thereunto belonging. Thus the revolution has ratified the impious overthrow and ignominious burial of the covenanted reformation in these two kingdoms that was made in the persecuting period and has fixed a legal bar in the way of their reformation in agreeableness to the sacred oath the three nations brought themselves under to God Almighty. Number two. As to the settlement of religion in Scotland, the Presbytery testify against it, because it was a settlement which, instead of homologating and reviving the covenanted reformation between 1638 and 1650, in profession and principle, left the same buried under the infamous Act Recissory, which did at one blow rescind and annul the whole of the Reformation and authority establishing the same by making a retrograde motion as far back as 1592 without ever coming one step forward since that time and herein acted most contrary to the practice of our honored Reformers who always used to begin where former Reformation stopped and, after having removed what obstructed the work of Reformation, went forward in building and beautifying the house of the Lord. That this backward settlement at the Revolution was a glaring relinquishment of many of our valuable and happy attainments in the Second and Most Advanced Reformation, as said is, and consequently an open apostasy and revolt from the covenanted constitution of the Church of Scotland is sufficiently evident from the foresaid Act of Settlement 1690 where, having, after having allowed of the Westminster Confession, they further added, quote, that they do establish, ratify, and confirm the Presbyterian Church government and discipline ratified and established by the 114th Act, James 6, Parliament 12, Anno 1592. So that this settlement includes nothing more of the covenanted uniformity in these lands than only the 33 articles of the Confession of Faith wanting the scripture proofs. Again, that the revolution settlement of religion did not abolish the act recissory, nor ratify and revive any act between 1638 and 1650, authorizing and establishing the work of reformation, is clear from the same act. Wherein, after abolishing some acts anent the late prelacy in Scotland, they declare, quote, that these acts are abolished so far elinarily as the said acts, and others, generally and particularly above mentioned are contrary or prejudicial to, inconsistent with, or derogatory from, the Protestant religion or Presbyterian church government now established. Where observe that this general clause is restricted to acts and laws insofar only as they were contrary to the religion settled in this act, and therefore as this act includes no part of the covenanted Reformation between 1638 and 1649, so this recissory clause abolishes laws, not as against foresaid Reformation, but only insofar as they strike against the Revolution settlement, which the act recissory could not do. Again, in another clause of the same act, it is added, Quote, Therefore, their majesties do hereby revive and ratify and perpetually confirm all laws, statutes, and acts of Parliament made against Popery and Papists. Quote. The only reason that can be given for the revival of laws, not against prelacy but Popery, when abolishing prelacy, is that the Parliament excluding the covenant of reformation from this settlement of religion, resolved to let the whole of it lie buried under the Act of Sicery. For as in reality there were no laws made expressly against prelacy before 1592, but against popery and papists. So, had they said, laws against prelacy and prelates, they, they, they thereby would have revived some of the laws made by the reforming parliaments between 1640 and 1650 wherein bishops and all other prelates, the civil places and power of Kirkmen, etc., are expressly condemned. Again, in the foresaid Act, they confirm all the articles of the 114th Act, 1592, except the part of it anent patronages, which is to be afterward considered. Now, had the Revolution Parliament regarded the reforming laws to have been revived, and so the Act Resissory to be rescinded by their Act V, 1590, they would not have left this particular to be again considered of, seeing patronages were entirely abolished by an act of Parliament 1649. But having the ball at their foot, they now acted as would best suit their political and worldly views. What's more observe that when the Revolution Parliament ratified the Act 1592, they take no notice of its having been done before by a preceding Parliament in 1649. All which plainly says that the reforming laws and authority of the parliaments by which they were made are not regarded as now in force. To conclude this particular, if the settlement of religion made in 1690 had revived and ratified the authority of our reforming parliaments and laws made by them, then, as these obliged the king to swear the covenants before his coronation and all ranks to swear them, and obliged to root out malignancy, sectarianism, etc., and to promote uniformity in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government in the three nations, so the revolution settlement would have obliged all to the practice of the same duties, and that, before ever king or any under him, could have been admitted to any trust. While all that would not comply therewith would have been held as enemies, not only to religion, but to their king and country also, as was the case when Reformation flourished. But as the very reverse of this was authorized and practiced at the Revolution, it convincingly discovers that the settlement of revolution made in 1690 left the whole of the Reformation attained to, ratified and established by solemn oaths and civil laws between 1640 and 1649, buried under that scandalous and wicked act recissory framed by that tyrant, Charles II, after his Restoration. Nor is there to be found in all the acts, petitions, supplications, and addresses made by the assemblies at or since the revolution anything importing a desire to have that blasphemous act rescinded, which stands in full force to the perpetual infamy and disgrace of the revolution settlement of religion so much gloried in by the greatest part as happily established. Number two. The Presbytery testify against the revolution settlement of religion, not only as including avowed apostasy from the covenanted constitution of the Reformed Church of Scotland and a traitorous giving up of the interests and rights of Christ our Lord and Redeemer, in these and especially in this land, but also, as it is, an Erastian settlement which will appear by considering, first, the scriptural method then taken in establishing religion, Instead of setting the church foremost in the work of the Lord and the state coming after and ratifying by their civil sanction what the church had done, the revolution parliament inverted this beautiful order, both in abolishing prelacy, settling presbytery, and ratifying the confession of faith as the standard of doctrine to this church. Second, in abolishing prelacy, as it was not at the desire of the church, but of the estates of Scotland. So the parliament did it in an Erastian manner, without consulting the Church, or regarding that it had been abolished by the Church, anno 1638, and by the state 1640, in confirmation of what the Church had done. Thus, Act 3rd, 1689, Tis said, quote, The King and Queen's Majesties with the Estates of Parliament do hereby abolish prelacy. Close quote. Again, when establishing presbytery, Act 5th, 1690, they act in the same Erastian manner, whereby the order of the house of God was inverted in the matter of government in regard that the settlement of the government of the church in the first instance properly belongs to an ecclesiastical judicary met and constituted in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is afterward the duty of the state to give the sanction of their authority to the same. This Erastianism further appears in the Parliament's conduct with respect under the confession of faith. See Act fifth session second Parliament first, wherein they thus express themselves, quote, like as they, by these presents, ratify and establish the confession of faith now read in their presence, and voted and approved by them as the public and avowed confession of this church. Hence it is obvious that the Parliament, by sustaining themselves proper judges of doctrine, encroached upon the intrinsic power of the Church. They read voted and approved the confession of faith without ever referring to or regarding the act of the General Assembly 1647 or any other act of reforming assemblies whereby that confession was formally made ours or even so much as calling an assembly to vote and approve that confession of new. That That the above conduct of the state without regarding the church and her assemblies either past or future is gross Erastianism and what does not belong at first instance to the civil magistrate, but to the church representative, to whom the Lord has committed the management of the affairs of his spiritual kingdom, may appear from these few sacred texts, besides many others. Namely, Numbers, chapter 1, verses 50 and 51. Quote, But thou shalt appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of testimony, and over all the vessels thereof, and over all the things that belong to it, They shall bear the tabernacle and all the vessels thereof, and they shall minister unto it, and shall encamp round about the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle setteth forward, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. See also chapters 3 and 4 throughout. Also Deuteronomy. Chapter 33, verse 8, verse 10. 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2. 2 Chronicles 19, verse 11, Ezra 10, verse 4. So David, when he had felt the anger of the Lord for not observing his commandments in this particular, says, 1 Chronicles 15, verses 12 and 13, to the Levites, Sanctify yourselves that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. For because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. Likewise, Hezekiah, a reforming king, did not himself at first instance set about reforming and purging the house of God? But having called together the priests and Levites, said to him, Second Chronicles 29, verse 5, Sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. Compared with verse 11, Malachi 2, 7, Matthew sixteen nineteen, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. All power is given unto me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. From all which it may safely be inferred that as the Lord Jesus Christ, the king and lawgiver of his church, has committed all the power of church matters, whether respecting the doctrine or government thereof, to church officers as the first proper receptacles thereof, so for civil rulers, at first instance, by their own authority to make alterations in the government of the church and to settle and emit a standard of doctrine to the church is a manifest usurpation of ecclesiastical authority and tyrannical encroachment upon the ministerial office. It needs only to be added that this revolution conduct stands condemned by the confession of faith itself in expressed terms as well as in the Holy Scriptures. Chapter 23, Section 3. Quote, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word or the keys. And also, by the beautiful practice of our reformers between between 1638 and 1649, who observed the scriptural order, the church always going foremost in all the several pieces of reformation attained to, and then the state coming after, by exerting their authority in ratification and defense of the church's acts and deeds in behalf of reformation. Number three. The Erastianism of this settlement of religion appears plain from the Act of Parliament 1592, noticed above, upon which the Revolution Parliament did found it, as in Act Fifth, Session 2, 1690, by which the forementioned Act 1592 is ratified, revived, renewed, and confirmed, and all the heads thereof, patronage accepted. Now, in regard that Act 1592 contains an invasion upon the headship of Christ, an intrinsic power of the church, and ascribes an Erastian power to the civil magistrate over the church, making it unlawful for the church to convocate, but in dependence upon the king for his license and authority, and in regard the revolution parliament to revive and renew this clause in forcehead Act 1592, as well as other heads thereof, it must needs follow that this settlement of religion cannot be freed of the charge of Erastianism. Nor is it very strange that statesmen who had been educated in the principles of Erastianism should be fond of reviving an act that robbed Christ of his crown rights and the Church of her spiritual liberty. But most surprising, that professed Presbyterian ministers should so greedily embrace and approve of Erastianism as a valuable and glorious deliverance to the Church of Christ. In agreeableness to this Erastian article of the above act, the Parliament in their Act 1690 indicted and appointed the First General Assembly as a specimen of their Erastian power over their newly constituted church. And it has ever since been the practice of the Sovereign to call, dissolve, and adjourn her assemblies at his pleasure, and sometimes to an indefinite time. It is further observable that the king's commission to his representative and assembly runs in a style that evidently discovers that he looks upon the assembly's power and right of constitution as subordinate to him. Thus it begins, quote, Seeing by our decree that an assembly is to meet, etc. Yet notwithstanding of this, the assembly 1690, nor any after them, so far as was ever known to the world, did not by any one formal act and statute expressly condemn Erastianism and explicitly asserts the lone headship, alone headship of Christ and the intrinsic, independent power of the Church in opposition to these encroachments made thereupon, and therefore may be justly construed consenters thereto. To conclude this particular of the Erastianism of the present settlement of religion, it may be observed that although the revolution parliament, from political views, did by Act I, Session Second rescind the first act of Second Parliament of Charles II, entitled, Act Asserting His Majesty's Supremacy Over All Persons and in All Causes Ecclesiastical. Yet, from what is above hinted, it may be inferred that the revolution state has still preserved the very soul and substance of that blasphemous supremacy, though possibly they may have transferred it from the person of the king, abstractly considered, and lodged it in the hand of the king and parliament conjunctly, as the more proper subject thereof, For, in the words of Mr. John Burnett, in his testimony against the indulgence, quoted by Mr. Brown in his history of the indulgence, quote, To settle, enact, and emit constitutions, acts, and orders concerning matters, meetings, and persons ecclesiastical, according to royal pleasure, and parliamentary is much the same, is the very substance and definition of His Majesty's supremacy, as it is explained by His Estates of Parliament, close quote. But the Revolution Act of Parliament, settling religion, is just to settle, enact, and emit such constitutions, acts, and orders concerning matters, meetings, and persons ecclesiastical, according to parliamentary instead of mere royal pleasure. And therefore, the Act authorizing the Revolution Settlement of Religion is the very substance and definition of a royal parliamentary supremacy. The truth of this will further appear by the sequel. Number four, the Presbytery testify against the revolution, constitution, and settlement of religion, as it is not a religious, but a mere civil and political one, not built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, but upon the fluctuating inclinations of the people as the formal foundation thereof. For proof of which, consider the Acts of Parliament relative to the abolition of prelacy and the establishment of presbytery. In consequence of an article of the ch- claim of right made by the Estates of Scotland, the Act Third Session I, Parliament 1689, declares, quote, that whereas the Estates of this kingdom in their claim of right declared that prelacy and the superiority of any office in the Church above presbyters is and hath been a great and insupportable grievance to this nation, and contrary to the inclinations of the generality of the people ever since the Reformation, they having been reformed from popery by presbyters, and therefore to be abolished. Our sovereign Lord and Lady, with advice and consent of the estates of Parliament, do hereby abolish prelacy and all superiority of any office in the Church in this kingdom above presbyters, and do declare that they, with advice aforesaid, will settle by law. That church government in this kingdom, that church government in this kingdom which is most agreeable to the inclinations of the people. Close quote. Agreeable to this, one of King William's instructions to the Parliament, 1690, is quote, "You are to pass an act establishing that church government which is most agreeable to the inclinations of the people." Close quote. Accordingly, we have the Act, Fifth Session, Second, 1690 settling Presbyterian church government in the same form and on the same footing. And so much King William, who doubtless was perfectly acquainted with the true intent and meaning of that act, declares in his letter to the assembly indicted by him that same year. From all which, without noticing the Erastian form of these acts, etc., it may be observed that there is somewhat done that is materially good, but then there is nothing importing the contrariety of prelacy to the scriptures of truth, nor the divine right of Presbyterian church government, so that the whole of this settlement is purely political, done for the pleasure of the good subjects of Scotland. For, first, the only reason why prelacy is complained of and abolished is because it was grievous and contrary to the inclinations of the generality of the people. It is not so much as declared contrary to law, though well known that it was condemned by many of the reforming laws, far less is it declared contrary to the word of God, and reformation principles founded their arm. Neither is it said to be a grievance to the nations, though it is manifest by the nations their entering into a solemn covenant to extirpate it, that it was an insupportable burden to all the three. And the great reason assigned for the people's dis- dis- dissatisfaction to prelacy is antiquity, quote, they having been reformed from popery by presbyters, unquote, as if our reformers had only contended for a church government merely human, whereas they strenuously maintain the divine right of presbytery and condemn prelacy as contrary to the Word of God. This reason would be equally strong against presbytery on supposition that prelates had got the start of presbyters in the Reformation from popery. Again, second, upon the same and no better ground was Presbytery established, namely, because it was more agreeable to the inclinations of the people, and, as it was, of a more ancient standing in Scotland than prelacy. Further, that the divine right of Presbytery is not acknowledged in this settlement appears from the express words of the act itself, wherein it is designated, quote, the only government of Christ's church in the nation, close quote. Not the only government of Christ's church laid down in the word of God, received and sworn to by all the three nations, ratified by both civil and ecclesiastical authority, a clear evidence that church government was regarded as ambulatory only and what might be altered at pleasure. Hence, while the king was settling presbytery in Scotland, he was also maintaining, as bound by oath, prelacy in England, etc. And so presbytery, for peace's sake, as most agreeable to the inclinations of the people, was settled in Scotland as the government of Christ's church there. Thus, there is a settlement of religion, and yet not one line of scripture authority or reformation principles legible therein. And, as one said, though a strenuous defender of the settlement, quote, the glory of that church is at a low pass which hangs upon the nail of legal securities by kings and parliaments instead of the nail which God has fastened in a sure place which, alas, is the case with the Church of Scotland at this day. It is true that the Parliament call their settlement agreeable to God's word, but it is as true that from their conduct toward both, abolishing prelacy and establishing presbytery from these political motives above mentioned, it is abundantly plain that they believe neither of them to be formally and specifically agreeable to and founded upon the word of God, but that they regarded all forms of church government as indifferent and thought themselves at liberty to pick and choose such a particular form as best suited the humors and inclinations of the people and their own worldly advantage. Accordingly, we find the Parliament 1689 appointing a committee to receive all the forms of government that should be brought before them to examine them from this purpose and then report their opinions of them to the House. That the Parliament at this time, or the King and Parliament conjunctly, acted from the above latitudinarian principle is further evident from their establishing and consenting to the establishment of these two different and opposite forms of church government, Presbytery in Scotland and Prelacy in England and Ireland, and both of them considered as agreeable to the word of God and the only government of Christ's church in the several kingdoms where they were espoused, which, as it is self-contradictory and absurd, so it is impossible they could have ever done this if they had believed the divine right of either of them. And finally, by this conduct of theirs the state declared their approbation thereof and resolution to copy after the 16th act session second parliament first of Charles II yet in force which ascribes an Erastian power to the king of settling church government as he shall think proper by all which it appears quite inconsistent with the revolution settlement to consider church power in any other light than is subordinate to the power of the state. And yet With this political and Erastian settlement of religion, the Revolution Church have declared themselves satisfied. They have not condemned episcopacy as contrary to the word of God, nor positively asserted the divine right of presbytery and disclaimed the claim of right and act of settlement as their right of constitution. But on the contrary, approved of both, as appears from the Commission's Act 1709 and their address to the Parliament 1711, both homologated by the succeeding assemblies. Whereby they declare that they have dropped the most material part of the testimony of the Reformed Church of Scotland, and are not faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in maintaining the rights of His crown and kingdom. From the whole it may be too justly be concluded, concerning the revolution settlement of religion, what the prophet Hosea declares of the calf of Samaria, Hosea 6, verse, excuse me, Hosea chapter 8, verse 6, quote, For from Israel was it also The workman made it, therefore it is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. It is not a divine institution founded upon the word of God and regulated by his revealed law, but a human invention, owing its original in both kingdoms to the inclinations of the people and governed by laws opposite to the laws of Christ in the world. Hence, we have the idolatrous institutions of prelacy established in the one nation, and Erastianism under the specious pretext of presbytery in the other, and both under an exotic head of ecclesiastical government. From what is said above, respecting the revolution constitution and settlement of religion in the nations, it will appear that the same are opposite to the word of God and covenanted constitutions of both church and state and to the reforming laws between 1638 and 1650, ratifying and securing the doctrine, worship, discipline and government of the church, and all divine ordinances, sacred and civil, according to scripture revelation, and therefore cannot be acknowledged as lawful by any that make the law of God their rule, and desire to go out by the footsteps of the flock of Christ. The presbytery proceed now to consider the administration since the late revolution as standing in immediate connection with the forementioned constitutions and settlement. Only, in the entry, it may be observed that as the maladministrations, civil and ecclesiastical, are increased to almost an innumerable multitude, so that it would be next to an impossibility to reckon them all, the Presbytery propose only to observe so many of the most remarkable instances as shall be sufficient to justify a condemnation of the present course of the nations, although the constitutions could not be accepted against as sinful. And, one, the Presbytery declare and testify against the gross Erastianism that has attended the administrations of both church and state since the Revolution. As the constitutions of both, above noticed, were Erastian and anti-scriptural, so their conduct ever since has been agreeable thereto, tending evidently to discover that, while the state is robbing our Redeemer of his crown and his church of her liberties, this church, instead of testifying against, gives consent to these impieties particularly one, as at the forementioned period, so ever since the king has continued by his own authority to call, dissolve, and adjourn the national assemblies of this church. The first revolution assembly was held by virtue of an Erastian indictment, and by the same power dissolved. The next was by royal authority, appointed to be at Edinburgh 1691, but by the same power adjourned to 1692, and then dissolved without passing any act and, though again indicted to meet 1693, yet was not allowed to sit until March 1694, near a year after the Parliament had made a humble address to the sovereign for granting that privilege. But it would be endless to attempt an enumeration of all the instances of the exercise of Erastianism in this particular, which is annually renewed. How often, alas, have the assemblies been prorogued, raised, and dissolved by by magistratical authority, And sometimes without nomination of another diet. How frequently also have they been restricted in their proceedings and prelimited as to members and matters to be treated of and discussed therein, depriving some members of their liberty to sit and act as members, though regularly chosen merely because such had not taken the oaths appointed by law. All which exercise of Erastian supremacy naively, naively results, excuse me, natively results from the Parliamentary Settlement 1690 and when no adequate testimony was ever given by the Church against such Erastian usurpations, but they are still crouched under and complied with it, may justly be constructed a tame subjection and woeful consent to his supremacy. That this is no forced inference from the continued practice of this Church appears from this, besides other evidences that might be adduced, that, as the Revolution Parliament, when ratifying the Confession of Faith, entirely left out the Act of Assembly 1647, approving and partly explaining the same, wherein these remarkable words are, quote, it is further declared that the assembly understands some parts of the second article of the 31st chapter only if Kirk's not settled or constituted in point of government, close quote, as being inconsistent with the Erastian impositions of the magistrate. So this church, when they cause entrance into the ministry, subscribe the confession, do not oblige them to subscribe it with this explanatory act which does by no means admit of a privative power in the magistrate destructive of the Church's intrinsic power, but they only do it as the Parliament ratified it.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five You may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin